Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. gentlemen welcome in to the duel of the greats podcast what it's it has been a week for me what week we're in week 13 folks we're gonna go it is far from home week slash growing up coming of age however you want to call it this week we battle white squall directed by ridley scott came out in 1996 uh, going up against et the extraterrestrial from Steven Spielberg, which came out in 1982. <clears throat> so, as we usually do, we'll kind of talk about what our first experiences were with this movie. Um, I can these movies. I can can start. My first experience with White Squall was roughly two hours ago, and <laughs> two hours and eight minutes ago, I should say. <laughs> uh, I finished it right before uh, we started recording. First time I'd ever seen it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I remember kind of when it came out, and it was like, I mean, there were a lot of like, I don't want to say big name, but like up and coming actors in the '90s. Like people thought they were going to be um, big, like Ryan Philippe and Ethan Embry, and um, what's that guy's name? The main character, Scott Wolf, I think is his name. Um, Jeff Bridges, of course, kind of giving it some a little bit of gravitas. Uh, forget Jeremy Sisto. Well don't forget Jeremy Sisto. Jeremy Sisto, yep, from Clueless fame. Clueless, uh, and six I, was, feet under. I was like, I was like, where the hell have I seen that guy before? And I looked him up, and it was Clueless. I was like, oh yeah, he was the suck and blow guy from Clueless. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and so it almost kind of like that uh, sort of school ties diner, those kind of movies where you know there's a bunch of young actors in it that everyone thinks are going to explode. Some of them do, some of them don't. Uh, in this movie, er, I mean, some of them, I wouldn't have to say any of them exploded, but, um, you know, some of it, some of them had decent, like Ryan Philippe, he had a good run there. Um, Scott, well, I think he was on uh, Party of Five for a while. Yeah, none of them lived up to their, their Tiger Beat teen heartthrob billionaire, did they? Uh, not quite. But anyway, so that was my first experience with that. My first experience with E.T. E.T. is one of those weird movies with like uh, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, etc., where I cannot recall a time in my life having not seen E.T. It's just always been maybe because, you know, it was a movie that was geared towards kids that was out when we were kids and it was something that was on VHS and we had VHS players and all that kind of a thing. So Maybe for that reason, it seems so ubiquitous as a movie. But yeah, I cannot remember not having seen E.T. in my life. So as far as my first experience with E.T., I, I can't even really recall. It's just always something that's been there, which is maybe kind of some of its uh, some of its charm. I mean, there's a I think there's a lot of our generation that probably feels that way, uh, unless you kind of just 
somehow grew up and didn't see E.T. in the 90s. Um, I mean, I even like we even had Mac and me on video VHS because I liked E.T. so much. And I loved Mac and me. So I don't even want to talk. I don't even want to hear Paul Rudd or anybody else talking <laughs> smack about Mac and me. OK, but um, so, yeah, that E.T. was for me, it's just kind of an always been there type of deal. And I am. Um, yeah, it's 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 been a cultural sort of E.T. phone home. You know, I mean, it's a it's just like Luke, I am your father. It's a cultural touchstone that we all know. And there's a reason for that. So, uh, yeah, that's my experience. Uh, Nate, what about you? Uh, almost the exact same experiences with both those movies. I had not heard of White Squall. I guess it's a little bit different. I, I had not even heard of the movie when we were recording this podcast. And we started talking about what movies we were going to compare to which. Uh, I watched it for the first time uh, this afternoon, and we'll have uh, thoughts on that. E.T., same exact thing. I have no memory of having not seen it. Um, I will say that I went, I feel like, probably a number of years, like many, many years without seeing it. And then I remember rewatching it once in my 20s and kind of really getting at that point like oh i see why this is such a great i mean i thought it was a good film when i was little but you really get, get more of a sense of it when you're an adult and then i saw it um we happened to watch it just randomly about six months ago so i saw it when i was in my tw a lot when i was little once in my 20s and then i i didn't specifically rewatch it for this one episode but i've seen it uh, within the last six months so it's still roughly fresh in my mind. Um, but I'm the same as you, Jeff. I, I have no recollection of having not seen the movie. It's just kind of been, always been a part of my childhood, even though it wasn't necessarily, I think what's interesting about movies like that is that like, I never, at no point in my childhood would I have called it one of my favorite movies. And yet it was so ubiquitous that you had just seen it all the time. So it's kind of my experience. Steve, what about you? Well, we're all roughly the same age, so as you can imagine, I have no distinct memory of seeing E.T. for the first time. I just had this, this pastiche of images from the movie in my head from childhood, so I know I watched it multiple times, but I can't ever remember sitting down and watching it the first time. Like you guys said, because of pop culture and everything else, it's just become so so ingrained in our society, but... I, I remember it terrifying me. Like, there were certain parts, and we might talk about them later, that just scared the shit out of me when we were kids. Especially, I think, the spacemen uh, all dressed up when, they're, when they come into the house for the first time. It is, that is, it is a scary sequence. Yeah. And you, you well, I must have saw one when I was like four, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially for, for being young, if you see it at a young age. Like right. That is, yeah. So. As I watched it again, I rewatched it for the first time in, gosh, 25, 30 years, I guess. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, mm, about two weeks ago. I'm a, I prepared a little bit early for this one. So it's it's still fresh in my mind. And it was nice to actually see it from beginning to end as an adult with a fully formed uh, critical brain. <laughs> Instead of just a child being terrified from scene to scene. Uh, the disrespect that you guys have leveled at White Squall. You saw it literally today. I saw it at least two weeks ago. So clearly I am doing much better than you guys when it comes to this. Uh, again, I prepared very recently for this, but it's not as recent as you guys. 
uh, yeah, I didn't see it when it came out. I think we were, you know, 10, 12. I don't remember. I kept, when I was thinking about it, I think I kept confusing this movie with the Pelican Brief somehow when it, in the 90s, and I don't know why. What? I don't know. I don't the know. Pelican... <laughs> I think there's like a poster or something that quite so the... I, I can't okay. picture. I'm I am pulling up the movie posters right now for the Pelican Brief. <laughs> I'm very talking curious. about the movie. We're talking about the movie with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, let's. I take remember a look being at very these. confused when I was younger, and somehow conflating the two of them. So, uh, I mean, pelicans are white, aren't they? Right. Maybe that's maybe that's and all they it was. squawk. They squawk, which is similar to squall. Maybe that's trying to, trying to help you out here. It might be the squawk and squall thing. Maybe it's really hard to say. Uh, the posters don't look that much the same, <laughs> though. I will I will say that if you were to Google the images and put like the movie poster, a lot of movie is posters it? had kind of the same design. in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. Um, the coloring is very similar. The, the coloring, there was sort of a washed over coloring. And then the title was usually in the bottom third had your uh you know your a-list people at the top and they there was like an image of them normally faded a character faded into the background they're at like an angle yes they're at an angle yeah so they they're similar in that regard um (laughs) i can't believe i look in brief white squall same white squalls (laughs) potato potato okay anyway so yes i i had not seen it until we watched it for this this fun little uh podcast that we're doing but boy, I'm ready to watch it now. Are they both John Grisham books? No, that's not right. This one was written by the guy who um, Scott Wolf plays. Definitely not a John Grisham. I am genuinely beginning to think that Steve accidentally watched the Pelican Brief and now is trying to spin it off. <laughs> like like yeah. he watched White Squall and he's going to start talking about the Pelican Brief. Like, remember when Denzel Washington uh, <laughs> didn't like, no, man, no, we don't. Um... <laughs> So, all right. With that, we can uh, we can talk about our categories this week. Nate, why don't you uh, tell us where we're going with those? Well, I admittedly don't have a lot for this week, so I will just come right out and say that for this week, we when we were picking these films to review against each other, or really when we decided just the idea for the podcast, we knew E.T. was a movie that we had to cover, and we all, the three of us, all agreed on that. And then it kind of became a matter of what movie are you going to pair E.T. with? Initially, we had a conversation several months ago about maybe Alien, but then we decided that Alien pairs so much better with Jaws. And so we were kind of searching and we came up with this movie, White Squall, to sort of fit this theme of coming of age. I've actually put in the notes for this category that having now watched White Squall, I don't think these movies match up all that well, but they are still roughly kind of coming of age, but they do it in very different ways. So for the exploration of theme, I think we just kind of need to talk about generally which director, for what they're trying to do with a coming of age story, which director is doing that better. And then visual storytelling, obviously these are very different visual movies. This is going to be hard to compare just because E.T. has such iconic visuals and White Squall probably does not. But I do think Ridley Scott does some things filming over water that are a little bit interesting, so we could compare those aspects. 
And then in terms of the characterization or the acting, uh, certainly Spielberg here is working with younger actors than Ridley Scott is in White Squall, but they are all of them working sort of with young-ish actors. And I think it's kind of the first time we've seen both these directors go up against each other, really working with sort of child actors. Um, so it might be worth talking about who's getting the most out of those performances from young actors. Before we dive into the categories proper, I could tell just by the look on Jeff's face, he's still, still upset that we, we went with White Squall instead of his topic, which it... After watching the movies, I think he's probably right. We should have done the we other should one have. here. To be fair, I thought White Squall, I thought the ubiquitous Squall, or excuse me, the uh, eponymous Squall would take place much sooner in the film. And so I thought this was going to be a lot of, hey, it's, this is their castaway struggle to survive, how, how, you know, their desires to get home. I thought they were going to grow up as they went home. I, I had... I had the exact same realization because I was thinking it was sort of like a Titanic thing or the white squall hits in the middle of the movie, and then the second half of the movie is them dealing with the white squall. At one point, actually, I recall pausing the movie to see how much time was left, because I was like, when is this white squall? Like, they get hit by a white squall. And I'd done reading about the movie of, like, it's a true story. Like, they get hit by a white squall, you know. So I had the exact same thing problem, Steve, where I was like, when is the white squall going to happen? same i and i like i have brief like snippets of memories of when the movie came out and the trailers and such and a lot of the the because of course i mean there's not a ton that happens that's like trailer worthy in the movie before the white squall so when you think of about what would be in the trailer you know a lot of the things that they have are holding onto the ropes as the white squall is hitting and all these sorts of things. And so, yeah, I kind of felt the same way. I was like, this is going to be the big action set piece in the middle. And then afterwards, it's going to be all about them coming back. And uh, no, no, it's no, no. But anyway, which one should we start with? Where are we going to start? Are you going to tell the fans what you were stumping for? Oh, yeah. So my idea that I am still upset about was Stranger in a Strange Land. It was going to be um, E.T. and 1492 by uh, Ridley Scott was going to be the competition, which I haven't seen 1492, so maybe that's one of the one. Maybe we would have been in the same scenario, but I feel like it, it would have been hard to be... It would be easy to be closer than, than this, these two movies, put it that way. Well, so... Because I I feel like if anyone was the true uh, patron for White Squall, it was probably me. Because of that, I feel like I have to defend it a little bit. And by doing, by defense, I mean I'm going to attack your choice. E.T. is a heartwarming, uplifting tale of a child making a connection with basically an immigrant. 1492 is the beginning of the genocide of millions of Native Americans. So... There you go. I think it also kind of highlights it. it highlights kind of this just general thematic problem that like <laughs> Ridley Scott this is why we had so much trouble finding something to pair with E.T. because we wanted to do E.T. but E.T. is like this childhood classic and Ridley Scott just isn't a director that yeah, makes he didn't really childhood go in for that. No. So we had nothing really like this is probably the closest we can get of like 
a youngish person might enjoy this I will and say kind that, of like yeah. it. I will say that, yeah. That As far as Ridley Scott's filmography goes, even though I haven't seen every single movie, of all the movies I've seen and the ones we've talked about, this White Squall is probably the closest, like, all-ages type movie that he did. Can, it's not an all-ages movie, but it's it's a closer, the closest he's ever come, as opposed definitely, to Spielberg, who has plenty in his repertoire. Yeah, and it definitely has some moments. What really made me feel that was... There are definitely some moments in White Squall where knowing Ridley Scott, who certainly makes R-rated movies, you think there were some opportunities where they could have gone R-rated, and it's clearly like a PG-13 kind of censorship. It's just one of those kind of movies. And there's a few different moments like that. There's obviously some exploration of the the sexuality of some of these young men, and you kind of think like, oh, this is about to be kind of graphic because we're so used to Ridley Scott. And they're like, oh, no, it's just sort of a... Yeah. EG thirteen telling of it. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Well, if you remember, I can't remember what film exactly it was, but if you remember from earlier in the season, he's kind of a prude. He doesn't like sex scenes. So, I agree with your ultimate premise, but that that, that particular aspect of it didn't surprise me as much. But I see, yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. So, with that, should we start with? Um... Let's start with characterization, because I think this might be the most rife area. Um, And since I decided to start with that, I will start. So I think this is, you know, sometimes when we've put these themes together, there are, especially with certain, not even necessarily the entire movies, but with certain categories, they there's just one strength versus another where it's it just it's an a natural imbalance and i think this is very apparent this week that this is a natural imbalance that's leaning towards spielberg because nobody and i would even say in the history of filmmaking is better than steven spielberg at directing children and young actors like he is just the best. And I've seen documentaries of him where he talks about it. And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode too, but with E.T. specifically, he was talking about they actually filmed E.T. in sequence. And he said that when he's got movies that have lots of, um, that focus, that the main actors are children, he has found and he he thought and he has found that the um, filming in sequence really helps child actors sort of grasp what's going on and be able to act better because it's happening to them in real time. You know, when you're older and you can kind of get in, get in and out of character in different scenes, you don't have to do it that way. But when you have young actors, it does help. And I think that, you know, that proof has been borne out in all the movies where he's, you know, all his, the ones that have really focused on young actors. I mean, there's some of the better, uh, performances that you can find et obviously being kind of the pinnacle of that now it also helps that uh, with et there's not a ton of uh, you know major uh, scene um, location shifts right like they're not in different countries and doing sorts of things like that so that's obviously would be much more difficult if that was the case but uh, it's not and and it and it you know spielberg really i mean obviously you know the the movie's a classic for a reason. All the 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 kids like they they act like kids, but it's not. I think the part part of the problem is so many times when you have ch- child or younger actors, right? They are written and directed in a way where it's like this is what a 40, 50, 60, 70 year old man directing 
thinks a teenager or child should act like. But I think Spielberg has a, a better grasp on and has really shown that he can just direct children to be children and it feels feels really genuine right and um you know i ridley scott like there's an admirable job admirable job that he's done and he has uh some actors that are talented enough that he can that they can kind of you know make it seem realistic but i mean there was like at one point one of the uh one of the the guys he was talking about the the lone female on the crew and uh, how saying, I think it was a, a lie talking about how he he'd seen her naked and referred to it as boner city. <laughs> I mean, maybe in 1960, that's how kids talked. I don't know. That's when the movie takes place, but uh, you know, stuff like that is just like, Oh, this is funny. If you're a you know 50 year old man thinking of what a, uh, a, 17 year old kid would say at that time right and it's just so stuff like that i'm just kind of like and and some of the interactions between the kids was or between the the young men was just kind of they didn't feel like they had like real character arcs they felt like they had problems that fit into this sort of Orve of the of what they wanted to do with the movie, right? Like, okay, we need to have the bully who's got problems at home. We need to have the kid with the overbearing dad. We need to have this. We need to have that kid, and and so they all just kind of fit into that mold and sort of did the same tropes where it's like, oh, the bully gets broken down because he finally gets challenged and then he finds out, then he starts crying and finds out, oh, you know, it's 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 okay. We're gonna help you now, and then they all become friends and it's all happy sunshine time and. And things like that, and and it just it felt kind of tropey in a lot of ways, and and the arcs didn't really feel all that genuine, you know, and not not to the degree that they did in ET, where you really, uh, you know, you really kind of saw that family evolve when ET himself comes in, and you see how it changes him, and you see how it changes Elliot as a kid, and how he, you know, how that friendship that he had with ET really changes him as a as a child as a person and i just i I don't think that you see anything like that in the same genuine level in white squall that you did in et yeah i agree i think that squall really to me just kind of comes down to the, the the character arcs are all like macho bravado we're trying to man up with like that's what the coming of age is is it's like who can be more of a man and sort of this manly kind of way i actually have this theory and watching it a few months ago i i think this really hit home and jeff you kind of brought this point up if you watch really old hollywood movies with child actors child acting for a long time was really really disturbingly bad child actors were not good actors because they weren't really treated seriously or obviously in a lot of cases in hollywood they were mistreated or they were abused et to me is kind of the very first movie where Steven Spielberg almost kind of invents the idea that you can build an entire movie about children for children around a story that's acted by children. We're still kind of living in a post-ET world. I think you see it in, in I think you see it in The Sandlot. I think you see it in the television show Modern Family. I think you see it in Stranger Things. I think you see Stand it by in me. Stand I by think, me. I think Spielberg I mean, yeah, he, was a producer on that. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, there were immediate influences where it's just this notion of like, oh, parents will bring their kids to go see a movie that's centered around children, and we can actually, there are talented child actors out there that if we treat them like professionals and we give them the correct rehearsals and we let them kind of bond in the way that children do, they can produce really, really good performances. And that just wasn't a thing that Hollywood productions were, I mean, seriously, go back and watch something like, I know everyone thinks it's a classic, but go back and watch the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Like the child acting is just atrocious. Any kind of child acting in any of these movies is really bad. And I think- Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but oh, what were you saying? I just want to say it's really interesting because it it almost makes you wonder. I hadn't really thought about it from that angle of kind of inventing that sort of idea. And the only um, director that I think could even hold a candle to Spielberg as far as directing children is probably M. Night Shyamalan for all his faults. Yeah. I think he's really good at directing children. Um, but you know, specifically The Sixth Sense, which was kind of his breakout movie, you got to wonder: Does a movie like that even exist if Spielberg doesn't doesn't approach child acting in this way that's a really good point i hadn't really thought about it like exactly that. and i i tried like the only movies that came out before it that i can kind of give a little bit of credit to are but they there's like weird exceptions like the exorcist is centered around a child and a child actress but like the whole thing is she's possessed by a demon and she's just being thrashed around and like i mean it's it's a very good convincing performance, but it's like this really, really in-your-face horror. It's not, there's not as much characterization. Um, it's, obvi it's obviously acting, and acting is required for it, but there's not a lot of depth or dimension to that kind of performance. I really think E.T., I think there's so many things. That, I mean, Stranger Things is probably the most obvious example where, like, the entire aesthetic of what Stranger Things is was basically invented by the movie E.T., and... I just think there's so many examples that you can think of uh, throughout the past 40 years where they really owe a lot to this movie and just the idea that like, oh, if we center a story around children, we can have child actors and um, they can put together really good performances if we create the right environment for them to do that. Yeah, you guys hit the nail on the head for everything. I don't really have anything to add to that except that Jeff I think you mentioned this it was one of my fun facts you skipped over my fun facts I'm coming for you but um, this was the first movie that Steven Spielberg shot sequentially and he did that because he wanted to act I mean, he wanted to he thought it'd be it'd be easier for the kids to relate and thought it would be more emotional for them when they say goodbye to E.T. at the end and as you both pointed out they, he set a standard that people have been chasing ever since so well, that, the, that is sorry that is my apology steve i did skip that it's been a week for those who don't know i moved houses this week so i am i am all sort of scattered so that is that is my fault but you you can you you do your you do your fun facts whenever you want on this show i'll just sprinkle them, them out there i'll sprinkle them in as we go well that was one of them <laughs> um regardless it was it was really interesting watching this movie again this is not purely uh, solely about the the acting or the characterization and maybe this will be a segue to the next next topic but this movie has had such it's you know an understatement to say this movie had such an effect on filmmaking and all the way up to now as i was watching it i'm like god lord this you know stranger things really is just this it's their own thing you know they've made their own their own spin on it but there's just such a distinctive 
visual style and and just way that the movie makes you feel um it's it's really something special and steven spielberg apparently he did not have a good time making raiders of the lost ark which is what he made right before this he felt like he was kind of selling out and selling his soul and so he really wanted to get back to something that in his mind was was something almost childlike and he really really nailed that i think as the fact that it became the highest grossing film of all time at the time i think attests to that I think if you look at the whole arc of Spielberg's career, I think this was, and I'm not saying he didn't want to make the movies he made before this. I think he definitely wanted to make Jaws. He definitely wanted to make Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all those, and they're all classics. I think this is the first movie, though, that he was really innocent. Like, this was the first kind of movie that gets released in his filmography that you feel like he was born to make this. This is an idea that he has had years and years and years and i'm sure steve many of your fun facts would reveal that like he you know his his parents divorce is what prompted a lot of this and kind of creating imaginary friends and how you do that and i just kind of when i watch this movie this is the first one that really feels like i feel like spielberg has had this idea for like 20 25 years like a good portion of his life this is the first one that he's really been born to make I think there's probably, you know, four or five films maybe in his filmography that fit that bill, but I think this is definitely the first one where you feel like it was a destiny that he was going to make this movie. It's interesting that he wound up making it because it originally came out of a script called Night Skies, apparently, which was going to be almost a horror movie. And Night Skies, so at the very beginning of E.T., poor little E.T. gets left alone, right? And all his little buddies leave him. And they're on a whatever sort of mission they're on, and exploring and picking flowers, whatever, in the dead of night in California. And then for whatever reason, he gets left behind. Night Skies was about those seven or eight or nine or ten aliens, like, terrorizing the shit out of people. And I guess the main one killed people with his little bony finger instead of healing them. And so that idea made it in, but obviously uh, changed. But the very end of Night Skies, um, excuse me, lost my train of thought, the very end of Night Skies, one of the aliens get the nice one, nicest one gets left behind. And so that is what transformed into ET. And as he was looking at it, um, Steven Spielberg talking to producers and dealing with it in pre-production and everything. They're just like, this isn't, this just really isn't cut, you know, the movie we want to make. And so that's kind of how ET evolved. Obviously the screenwriter, I can't remember. I believe his name is Matheson uh, played a huge part, but it's, it's very fascinating that, it almost was willed into being this movie, like you're saying. It wasn't just, he didn't just pick up a copy. It's like, here's E.T., this child, you know, coming of age, lighthearted film. So it's it very much has his stamp of creation on it. We'll point out that the screenwriter for E.T. was uh, Melissa Matheson. Thank and you, for... yes. Like a really, really, really long time, this was the highest grossing film written by a woman. And obviously, you know, Spielberg did like kind of uncredited rewrites because it was sort of his little baby from the beginning. But uh, Melissa Matheson wrote the screenplay. Interesting. I, uh, I would unironically love to eat a horror movie version of that. Like, I don't want E.T. now, right? Like, uh, because I don't want to tarnish what et is but like that's a that's an interesting idea for a for a horror movie it, 
turned into i will have to research this a little bit there was a horror-ish kind of film that was called fire in the sky oh i remember that movie that movie creeped the hell out of me yeah it has some terrifying sequences that was made in 1993 and i want to say there is some line that you can draw from the development of the early version of et to this movie it's not at all the same I will do some research on that, though, and maybe get back to you, because I, I feel like I've read that somewhere, that Fire in the Sky is kind of the movie that the original horror film version of E.T. was going to become. I'll double-check that for you, though. Interesting. Um, but that was a good segue. We can go into the um, the thematic portion, right, of, of being, you know, sort of this, this coming of age, far from home, etc., so for for me the again I think this is another area where Spielberg just has an inherent advantage. He's just he's just better at it, the coming of age type of thing. And even you know, even when it's bad, it's still good in terms of like the the that thematic aspect, right? Like a movie hook, right? Not that great. But you know, there's still some of that Spielberg magic there that that he can capture a little bit of it but just you know that that's obviously a different conversation um but but et is obviously the pinnacle like we've talked about and it's it's hard to do it much better and especially you know it's it's kind of a personal thing for me because i um you know i didn't have a ton of friends growing up and i you know i had to deal with bullying and all that kind of a thing and so with the Elliot character and E.T., you know, like, I, this is part of the reason why I always really liked the Chewbacca character in Star Wars, right? Because, like, I always wanted, like, that really cool friend, right, that nobody else had that was just, like, super loyal, awesome friend companion, you know? And so, braving that and, and, and finding that and how that can change you, like, that, that is a... Like that's that's a really and that's a personal thing for me, but at the same time, I think it was something that Spielberg did really well. And then on the flip side, when you look at White Squall and with Ridley Scott, like this is just something that that it's just not in his wheelhouse. You know, he 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 tried his best, and it was you know it wasn't terrible, it was fine. But there's just a lot of um, you know, there was a lot of inter- like they they first show up on the boat and the um. I don't even know what his role was on the boat, but the guy who's like an English teacher or something, he's uh, maybe this is personal for you, Nate. <laughs> um, but they, he's, you know, quoting Shakespeare and he quotes Rudyard Kipling and he does, he's, you know, there's Moby Dick references and everything. It's, it's almost like a sort of semi dead poet society at sea, but it, it's, it just doesn't capture that same kind of magic. And there's, you know, a part of it has to do with that kind of tropiness. I think that we saw, with with a lot of the uh, younger characters and it's just it, it it's just you know w- what we have talked about that makes Ridley Scott so great is when he he asks those hard questions and he goes to places that one of his one of his inherent advantages that we've talked about with other episodes over Spielberg is he'll ask that question and he'll go to those places and he'll cross those lines that Spielberg just will not cross um and so that is a big strength of his and this movie 
just felt like he played it way too safe. And there wasn't really many of those big kind of questions that we're used to with him. And there's, it was hopeful and and none of that stuff is bad, but that's not what Ridley Scott's good at. And so, you know, he's kind of better at, at the, the bleak sort of, you know, (laughs) this, it sounds, sounds really great. Right. But I mean, that's, that's what he does really well. And that's part of why he's such a great director when he does it really well, it's, it turns into something amazing. But when he tries to do it, some of this stuff differently, not that he couldn't ever, but this wasn't it. So from a thematic standpoint, you know, the coming of age stuff, like there was, there's a lot of the check the box type stuff, right? Like kids exploring their sexuality, kids having these machismo, Nate, like you mentioned, right? Like they're these, I even wrote it down, like just a good old fashioned dick measuring contest when there's one guy dives off the boat and the other guy goes up one, one mast higher and then dives off the boat even higher. And then, you know, and they're pushing and shoving each other and it's a whole thing. And, and it's, uh, and I mean, you know, some of that stuff, like I went to an all boys high school, that kind of stuff does happen. And it's not like it's unrealistic, but it just, it just felt kind of ham fisted in, in this one. And it just, it's just not his strength. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely give the edge to, to Spielberg on this one. I, I, I think Ridley Scott makes two types of movies. He, he makes really beautiful thought-provoking movies with big ideas like you talked about most of the time they're bleak and they end up very depressing (laughs) but we love them right your alien um blade runner those are the two the two biggest examples but then he also and this might be one of his first ones i'm not entirely sure i'd have to look at his entire filmography chronologically but it's one of the first ones we've covered where it's almost just a non-fiction book now, this is obviously a fictionalized story a little bit, but it's something that happened. But this, Robin Hood, again, take the nonfiction part, you know, with finger, air quotes. But he just, he's telling a, a straightforward story, and there isn't really much of a quote-unquote big idea. It's X, Y, and Z happened. The conflict comes from just the, the inner workings of the plot. Gladiator almost does this, but... It has some things that elevates it and turns it into one of his better films. We've we've talked about that in another episode. But some of his worst films, in my mind, are like this. It's just a, a pure story with no real... Nate, you're the literary guy. Maybe you can help me come up with what I'm trying to say here. It's not that there's no conflict, because there's obviously, you know, they face down the white squall, and then what happens with that? But it's very much it's not wrestling with the biggest ideas in on on the uh, the universal stage it's just kind of telling you x y and z happened they went from this place to this place to this place and it's kind of by the numbers uh you're by the numbers i think that's the perfect phrase to use because when i was watching this movie when we talk about et it's like so original and unique to who spielberg is and it's it's changed cinema and it's affected so many people and influenced so many people when i was watching white squall the movie that i was really reminded of was dead poet society which had come out just a few years before and this like i think this movie got greenlit because of dead poet society and it almost feels like ridley scott is just trying to copy like beat for beat dead poet society but it's on the high seas and you get a lot of those same beats and then even 
you know, that last scene where the guy comes out and rings the bell, it's kind of like the, oh, captain, my captain. It's it's very similar to that, but it doesn't, I, I unlike almost, in Dead I almost vomited. <laughs> yeah, it, it, unlike Dead Poet Society, it's not at all earned. You Like, he's supposed to be building this camaraderie with these boys that, uh, you know, he's teaching to sail the ship. But it... The, you never really feel like he does do that. And then it kind of gets to this supposed like courtroom scene <laughs> where they're going to take away his captain's license. And all of a sudden, all these boys come out to defend him or take the blame for things. It just, it feels really, really unearned. I and was going to say like, the exact same phrase. Like yes. it just, it's, it, and I, again, I think the reason it's in there is because it's like, I literally was watching it where the kid rings the bell. I was like, this is like dead poet society. Ringing the bell is the equivalent of the kids standing up on the desk saying, oh, captain, my captain. Like, that's, it's dead poet society, except it's not earned at all. It's, it's, it's the same, and yet it's the exact opposite. And one of the just most bizarrely weird, like, tonal shifts in the movie, right? Because it's, you know, you have the white squall, and so, like, everything's kind of coming of age, sort of somewhat cheery and hopeful, you know, and then the white squall, and then, like, people die, multiple people and then there's this huge inquest right and it it almost feels kind of like uh vertigo where you know the vertigo starts off one way and he's you know tailing this woman and then there's this murder and then there's this inquest and it's just it feels really weird because it, it doesn't it's like oh okay i guess is this going to be a courtroom movie now but then it's just a short little scene now, now alfred hitchcock does <laughs> handles that shift much better but it, it's still kind of jarring and then yeah like at the end he just this kid who got thrown off the boat and it was one thing if like when the kid who rings the bell Beaumont I think was his name like if he the other kids like stuck up for him were like oh we don't want him to get thrown off the boat had they um had they succeeded and the kid like then had to you know be in the doghouse and swab the deck Beaumont you know whatever and and kind of worked his way back then you could feel at least it would still kind of probably feel a little hammy but it would have been a little bit more earned but as it is now he just gets kicked off and then all of a sudden has a change of heart because that scott wolf goes and makes like hands him this bell and he's like oh yeah, yeah. and then and then not only that what doesn't feel also like jeff bridges is having this big adult moment in the thing where he gives up his captain license willingly. And he's like, this is not going to bring your kids back, but if it's making, it's going to make you feel better then so be it. And then he walks out and the Scott Wolf tries to stop him. And he's like, Oh, everything you said about being together. didn't, doesn't mean nothing now. And he's basically just says like, shut up. You don't understand. You're just a kid. And those aren't his words, but that's essentially what he says. And then he just walks past him, but then the guy rings the bell and then he turns around and he's just like, you're right. This is, and it's just, it, yeah, it was just so ham. I was like, oh my God, I wanted vomit. It was bad. It's it wasn't characterization, like, characterization whiplash. Yeah. It, yeah it's, this it's, is not the same character within a 45 second span. It's three different guys. Yeah. It's manipulation is what it is. And it, yeah. it, it's just, it's audience manipulation and it's, it's uncharacteristic of, of Ridley Scott to go there. So that's why I think it kind of, if it was just some no-name director, you'd probably be like, eh, whatever, you know. But for Ridley Scott, it's like, come on, Ridley, you're better than that. That was my takeaway, anyway. Well, and that's what's so frustrating to me about this movie. And this is kind of pivoting to the the visual storytelling. So, Nate, if you have something still to discuss about the characterization, I want to hear that first. Oh, kid, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, this movie is gorgeous. He filmed it. They filmed it in an amazing way. And they filmed, they got an actual 110 foot triple masted schooner or whatever and filmed it at sea. The only time they filmed it in a tank was for the, the squall, um, squall scenes. Gigantic tanks, by the way. They had two of them. One was six million gallons, 40 feet deep. I haven't looked up what the Titanic filming tank was, but that's got to be on par, you know, what, three years early? Regardless, this movie deserved way better. The the attention that, and care that the, the film, the actual DP uh, put into it, and the Ridley's visual storytelling, the, the skill that he is able to bring to bear on it, it just seems kind of like a wasted opportunity because they, they just didn't quite stick the landing on any of it. Yeah, it's, I, I completely agree. It looks great. It's kind of a movie that when I, you know, again, we all like watched it. Well, Jeff and I watched it today. Steve, you watched it two weeks ago. Like I kind of was rooting for it at first because it does look so good. You're like, God, maybe this is like some hidden masterpiece, you know? I like, thought maybe, the same thing when I like, first. Man, I was like, maybe oh, I'm gonna like, like great. maybe I'm gonna come in this week and be like, White Squall is better than. <laughs> like, maybe that's what I'm gonna do. Fight me. And, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then the movie just keeps going, and again, just every little part. There's no cliche unexplored, and uh, Jeff, you already pointed this out, but just the uh, the screenwriting of like it's it's like a grown person's version of what like young men talk about. It's just. Everything is very forced, and it just it just bugged me. I also don't know, Steve, if this came up uh, in your facts, but I uh, I looked this up as I was watching it. But the uh, the phrase "where we go one, we go all" that the QAnon right wing conspiracy theory uses, they got that from this movie. That is uttered in no. this movie, and they actually they actually pulled it from this movie. Yeah, it's been now, <laughs> Yeah, now obviously they are completely misinterpreting the the uh, <laughs> the usage of that phrase, but. And that's not Ridley Scott's fault, but it's also kind of a mark against the movie of a movie I was already going to vote against anyway. So there you go. <laughs> it kind of fits because it, it's a very traditional, as you mentioned earlier, a very traditional masculine idea of growing up and what a man should be. And it it could have really wrestled with those themes and stuff, but instead it just it takes that at face value. Even though we have all these examples in the movie or at least the one glaring example in the movie of that leading to horrific, horrific results. The, the one dad that beats the shit out of his kid. And then the other dad, I mean, the main character's dad, he is a kind of detached, reserved, you know, cold father that presumably ascribes to these, these same, you know, traditional machismo values. Anyway, disappointed in Ridley. Well, and, and there was a scene where when they're, about to kick off the kid for shooting a dolphin um and this really bizarre scene Which where jeff bridges a, yeah, a, beats a dolphin to death with a freaking mallet i was i my was watching God. i was watching it with my wife and like you know, just out of nowhere she's like, she's like are they gonna kill the dolphin i was like i don't know i'm sorry if they do <laughs> <laughs> like and like the scene ends and i was like yeah i probably could have done without that sequence but okay <laughs> Yeah, my God, but but right after that, and he's he's sitting in the cabin, he's having a a conversation with his wife, and he's talking about like, you know, 
oh, you know, we we can't lose control. We have to have order and all this kind of thing. And and to to, to your point, Steve, of what you're saying, right? Like I was I was like, oh, you know, because I was thinking like you thought at first, Nate, maybe this is a hidden gem and then it wasn't. And then I see this here and I'm like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is where Ridley Scott is is pumping that big question and starts to go like, what is control? Do we ever have control? Is White Squall a metaphor for losing control? And nope, not at all. He just, everything happens. And then at the end he says, well, I lost control and now my wife's dead. And it's like, uh, what? Uh, this is, uh, no. And just, yeah, man. Uh, that I agree, Steve. This This movie deserved better. It had the potential to be better, especially if you're going to get somebody like Ridley Scott at the helm. And instead, it's just, you know, movie of the week. So I think Ridley Scott just really wanted to make a movie on a ship at sea. And like he read this script and he's like, I can paint my numbers on the story and all this and just go, as you would say, go ham on on the visual storytelling. Because there's a line in this biography about him. This is not a this is a direct quote from the book, but it's not a direct quote from Ridley. It says he Ridley found the script honest and unsentimental and liked the rite of passage aspect of the story. So he just, I think he just read it and he's like, I can do that. We'll, we'll do that and we'll get a big ass boat and we'll stick it on the ocean. And it'll be beautiful. It, it's almost like he wanted this to be his ET and just, just didn't. I mean, it, it probably said, it said something for Ridley Scott that first of all, that he tried it so good, you know, he tried to go against what he normally did up to that point. And, you know, that's good. You want to see directors sort of stretching their legs, if you will, and trying different things. And to his credit, he saw that it didn't go all that well. And he hasn't gone back to the well since on that one, you know. So, you know, he, he tried it, didn't work, learned from it, moved on. So there's there's something to be said for that. And, that's, you know, some of the things that because there are directors out there who will be like, no, people just it's the audience that doesn't the kids <laughs> that don't understand. And I can do this and would keep trying and keep trying. And and but no, he was just like, OK, you know, that was fun. It didn't quite work. So we're just going to go do other things now. I don't know if there's any sort of correlation or excuse me, any causation here, uh, but there is a correlation. I think that this is the last of a string of three movies where, uh, or excuse me, only two movies that were just kind of failures for him. And then he just hit, hit kind of banger after banger. Um, 14, <laughs> 1492 actually was right before this. So he came off Thelma and Louise and did 1492. And then this, and that was all he did in like, six years uh, i mean at that point you kind of wonder what is has he lost his touch he's only done thelma and louise and alien well and blade runner so well then didn't he do gi jane next too? gi jane is very the very next thing and it's obviously dramatically different although in some ways kind of similar similar themes i mean obviously it's not growing up but this person facing adversity and stranger in a strange land perhaps yeah but then he does G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Man, Kingdom of Heaven, American Gangster, Body of Lies, Robin. I mean, movies that not all were, you know, huge successes, but he kind of becomes the director that that we know, you know. There's Alien, Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, and then modern Ridley Scott. And this is kind of in that middle fallow period where it's just like he was misfiring. You know, I was thinking about this today, that... Both these directors, since they've been around for roughly the same amount of time, you could really kind of break their careers into three arcs, if you will. You could call, um, like with Spielberg, right, classic Spielberg, where you, you know, you could 
technically start with dual, but really started with like Jaws and then all the way up to like Hook. Okay. And then modern Spielberg, which would be like your Jurassic Park up to War of the Worlds. And then contemporary Spielberg, which would be, um, you know, kind of after post War of the Worlds to current. Right where we've talked about, you know, the bridge of uh, bridge of spies, etc. Now you could break Ridley Scott's career up to the same kind of a same kind of a way, and I think it's interesting because I think classic Scott versus classic Spielberg, I think they're they're pretty close. Contemporary Scott versus contemporary Spielberg, I think they're pretty close. And you know, classic, I would probably give the nod to Spielberg a little bit, and then contemporary, just overall contemporary, I might even give the the nod to Ridley Scott a little bit, but that middle portion, the sort of modern portion, I think, you know, Spielberg is just, that's where he really shined. And of course, we've always talked about that sort of my favorite period of his career, but I think it's interesting how their arcs, how their their careers have had sort of almost those pretty defined arcs that have almost happened at, at similar times in their careers. I think it's really interesting that he made, this feels so weird that this is the same director who made Thelma and Louise. And this week feels a lot like the Thelma and Louise week, where that was against Sugarland Express, and Thelma and Louise was like just so obviously superior to Sugarland Express. I kind of feel the obviously opposite way this week that ET is just a clearly superior film. It's like he, because it's as you guys have both mentioned, he does Thelma and Louise, and he does fourteen ninety two White Squall, then he just it's G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, it's like hit after hit. It's almost like he takes this period in the mid nineties where he's established himself as Ridley Scott. Probably after Thelma and Louise, he could do just about any movie that he wanted to do. People would give him scripts. They're bringing stuff to him. He can pick any movie he wants to pick. It's almost like you look at the movies in his filmography. You look at Alien. You look at Blade Runner. You look at Thelma and Louise. And he takes these few years where he's like, maybe I'll just try and do like a normal Hollywood studio movie that just hits all the beats and... It's just sort of for general audiences. I can do anything I want. I'm just going to make these movies for general audiences, and it doesn't work. As Steve pointed out, 1492 and White Squall were kind of box office disappointments. Then he kind of goes back to like, you know what, never mind. I'm going to trust my instincts a little bit more and take some risks, and that seems to be what makes me successful, and that's what has happened. So, yeah, um, so I think it's probably not much of a surprise as far as voting is concerned this week i'm going with et um i'm guessing nate just from what you said you are as well so i don't know that it really matters steve but i if steve, i had are you doing would... are, are you going pelican brief this week or... <laughs> pelican brief or the firm perhaps we we <laughs> oh good lord rainmaker uh we have to get this this little graphic that our producer brandon made here it's it's brilliant it's got the poster of et and it had White Squall <laughs> says the the episode name, and Brandon's got the the Pelican Brief poster taped over the White Squall side. It's great. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we'll, maybe we'll post it on Instagram. Um, awesome. But yeah, it's ET by a mile. I was I was gonna do before you beat me to it in a much better fashion, Nate, and with the 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 fun joke about you know can we can we pull off the this is the podcast that says. You know, White Squall is better than ET. This is we're gonna do it. I was gonna maybe make a joke about that, but no, it's ET by a mile, which is really a shame. Like I said, I I wanted to like White Squall a lot more than I did, 
it just it looks really good and it has potential but good yeah movie et and also watching et for the first time as an adult it, man that is just such a fantastic movie <laughs> not making any headlines here but it just it was nice to really appreciate it because again i had only seen it as a kid and to sit back and really just soak it in as a film it was nice when they take off on the bikes it's just i mean yeah. it wasn't it wasn't cheesy at the time but it just because it's so ingrained now it feels cheesy but it doesn't even matter it fucking nails me every time and it's just you know because i was like I, I watched it with my daughter we've watched it um, a few times over the years and recently within the last year we watched it again because now she's getting a little bit older she's getting close to the age of where elliot is in the movie and and uh and every time, remember the first time we watched it, I was like, oh man, the bike scene, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to feel cheesy and all that. And it's just, no, it doesn't. And it's the, it, it's the, the, the greatness of Spielberg, right? That a film like this that has been so ingrained in everything that we know about, about so many films for so many years, and it still hits the exact same way. I mean, it's, it's, that's the brilliance right there. And it's, it's hard to replicate that. So what does that bring us up to on our tally? Right now, we're at seven to six, Spielberg. So we have two more, I'm sorry, sorry, seven to six, Ridley Scott. We have two more weeks left now in the season, two more episodes. So if Ridley Scott pulls off a victory in any of those two weeks, then it's game over. Spielberg has to win out. Ooh, we got some stakes here. And next week will be possibly our most interesting week uh, as we're not doing direct movie comparison. Next week, we're going what we're calling Freaky Friday Week. So we're going to look at a list of actors and actresses that both directors have directed and that they have directed in similar time frames. So, so the... Um, for instance, right, you've got Harrison Ford was directed by Steven Spielberg in Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 and by Ridley Scott in Blade Runner in 1982. And Ridley Scott, or I'm sorry, Steven Spielberg directed Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can in 2002. And Ridley Scott directed him in Body of Lies in 2007. So we've talked about a lot of these movies and we've sort of talked about the performances, but now we're, we're going to talk directly about who got more from the actors who got better performances from the actors in their respective movies and with you know within the context of the films themselves which i think is going to be a really interesting topic for discussion um and the the list of actors that were going on is i've already mentioned you know harrison ford leonardo dicaprio uh jaiman hansu um help me out i don't have the list in front of me what were the other ones um kate capshaw jaiman hansu is in amistad and gladiator Kate Capshaw was in Temple of Doom and Black Rain. Eric Bana was in Munich, Black Hawk Down. Uh, Julianne Moore was in The Lost World and Hannibal. Mm-hmm. I think, th- is that all? Yeah, I think that's all, I think that's all yeah. the ones we're going with. Tom Cruise there are a couple, there are a couple Legend. And, we're yeah, going to watch was, Legend. Yeah, and there was, Maybe. you know, there were a couple other ones, like uh, Tom Sizemore was in both. We already talked about that in the right, same Private Ryan. And there was, um, 
Christian Bale was one that we discussed, but because um, he was in Empire of the Sun, which Spielberg and what was the Ridley Scott movie that he was? Exodus, um, Gods and Kings. Exodus, Gods and Kings. That's right. So, but we decided not to do that because Empire of the Sun was like 1987. That was Christian Bale's first movie. And Exodus was, I mean, it was like less than 10 years ago. I think it was like 2014, maybe. Yeah, so, like it, you know, it's not a real fair comparison. We tried to group them together where to where they were at the actors were at similar points in their careers if we could because it's it's not really fair if you're like okay you know somebody's trying to direct a kid in this first ever movie versus a seasoned actor who's won an academy award you know by that time you know so it's it, that wasn't necessarily a fair comparison so some of that christian bale you know so we didn't hit all the actors but these are the ones that were were grouped pretty close together that we thought would be um a fun comparison so i'm looking forward to that week i think that's going to be an interesting one to talk about uh so yeah that'll be next week so uh, i'm just excited that i get to watch legend any any (laughs) imparting thoughts gentlemen so i just one thing that i really really loved about et sorry just i can't get over how much how good this movie is the shot of never showing the adult's face until you know the big reveal with the the space space suit and all that the scientists, you start seeing their face at that point after E.T. dies. But the commitment to the bit, I just love it. I just love it. That's my final thought, sorry. Actually shot a lot of it at really low angles, so you were like mm-hmm. at the yeah. height of a child. My random, totally, completely random final thought is one of my favorite E.T. influences is a movie that no one has seen ever. I'm the only person that I believe is it Mac- actually Mac and me? Is it? It's not Mac and me. It's not Mac and me. It's a 2016 movie by Jeff Nichols, who's one of my favorite directors, called Midnight Special. It is a fantastic movie. If you like E.T. or any Stranger Things, anything like that, I've tried to get so many people to watch this movie. It's like one of those movies that I saw, and I thought it should have been such a huge, massive hit. It made like $6. So (laughs) Less than you. Yeah, yeah. So that that's like my random recommendation for this week that I will leave you with. You've been stumping for that literally since it came out. I remember I, you talking about I rem- it. Yes, I talked about it when it came out. Yeah, it's and I love it to this day. It's such a good movie, and it definitely has those influences. I strongly recommend anyone I have heard of to it. this. What's the I name of the, it, the main I have guy? Heard of it. Uh, Michael Shannon. Thank it's you, got. Thank you. It's I got Michael Michael's. Shannon, and it's basically about, it has Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton. Um, it also has Adam Driver in it. Sam Shepard is in it. Kirsten Dunst is in it. It is about this father. I don't want to say too much. It's about this father who has this little boy who has what appear to be these sort of supernatural abilities, and there are a number of people trying to get this boy. There's like a religious cult trying to find him. There, the NSA is chasing after them. There's all these government officials and the FBI chasing after them. And it's about him basically trying to get his son to some kind of coordinates where he believes his son is supposed to be at a certain time. I want to leave you in the dark. Try and go. That's all I want to give you. If you happen to watch it, go in with just that information. It's, It's super compelling, and I love it. Well, there you go. There's your recommendation for the week. So with that, we'll leave you. Thank you all again for listening so much. We really appreciate it. Couldn't do this show without you, all you listeners. So tune in next week for Freaky Friday. But until then, uh, thank you all so much, and we'll see you next time.